This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. I guess I just wanted to say, okay, so we're going to be putting a poll on Twitter. Folks who listen to this podcast, what areas of Kratom Science would you like us to focus on? At Kratom Science and check out the poll um, of of what you want us to get into on this podcast, if anything. So, yeah, uh, I've uh, me and Brian have really enjoyed seeing the sort of discussions that unfold uh, and are happy to see that people are seeming to enjoy uh, the Journal Club where we dig into some of the science a little bit deeper. So what we were interested in doing is uh, setting up a poll that Brian just was just explaining um, that has broad categories like, do you think we should look at an article or research in genetics or how uh, metragenine or metragenine is synthesized in the plant? You know, so sort of plant biochemical physiology. Or would you be more interested in the next one being a, you know, a cultural level type study, looking at sociology and different use patterns and trends, maybe even historical uses and how that has changed. And then, of course, you know, we could get into neuroscience, brain systems, um, but there, there are different levels of analysis, different perspectives we could come from and look towards. And we want to make sure that we are keeping it fresh and interesting for all, for all you guys. Uh, so if you want to help steer the direction of where uh, the Journal Club goes or even make an article recommendation yourself, please uh, check out that poll and, and reach out to us at KratomScience.com. Yeah, and that'll be on uh, on Twitter on at KratomScience. Okay, so the article we're talking about is called Kratom Instrumentalization for Severe Pain Self-Treatment Resulting in Addiction, a Case Report of Acute and Chronic Subjective Effects. And it was published in Helion, which is an open access journal, published recently. It's a case study of a young German man who was prescribed a synthetic, synthetic opioid tilidine after a car accident. Um, and he lives with chronic pain from that car accident. Um, he tried Kratom for three months, stopped, then got on Kratom again for three months, then sought help to get off of the Kratom. And he also used... Tilidine intermittently with the kratom or tilidin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and it mm-hmm. mm-hmm. seems as though he kept he was using kratom kind of as an opiate alternative, which some people who I've talked to who have gotten off of opiates say you shouldn't really do that. You should maybe stop, you know, for a week every month or a couple days every month just to keep your dose Tolerance low. Breaks. Less right, is right. more yeah. is a lot, a lot of what I hear from the Kratom community. It seems as though he was just increasing, increasing, increasing his dose. And then ultimately he was treated for his chronic pain with morphine, apparently, even though they don't really discuss that that much in the study how the morphine was introduced, because it said pain management was successfully switched to ibuprofen and metamazole natrium. Well, so yeah, we got a case report of this 26-year-old male. I think it's interesting just to make sure that we know that this was uh, in Germany. Um, So the the authors of this article are in a department of psychiatry and psychotherapy, uh, I'm assuming at a clinic associated with the university, right? So uh, basically, um, this 26-year-old male 
uh, had a bone fracture in his foot um, and was given uh, morphine right after that uh, accident. I got off the morphine uh, and then started using Tilidine. And, and I don't know if we're saying it right either. Substitol is morphine in, in Germany. Tilidine is another synthetic opiate. I think it's fair to say or, you know, just analogize that the Tilidine is a synthetic opiate. It would be much like tramadol. So a sort of low to medium uh, synthetic opiate used to treat pain, um, whereas morphine, of course, would be like, high, you know, used in, in high, more high, higher pain situations. So yeah. essentially, he goes to the hospital, uses morphine, gets the tramadol, wants to start backing away from the tramadol and seeking more natural options, uh, starts using Kratom. Um, there's a whole, you know, a bunch of nuances there that we can get into. Um, but ultimately, he ends up going to these doctors seeking treatment uh, for his Kratom use, uh, and they help him detox, get off the Kratom, and ultimately put him back on morphine uh, so he can manage his pain that way. Um, so it's an interesting story uh, with several twists and turns, um, but just interesting to note that both in the U.S. and in Germany, uh, it seems that we are still stuck on this idea that people who are addicted to opiates should be treated with opiates. Uh, so I always giggle at that. Yeah, and it's interesting that, which, I mean, it's probably because they don't know much about Kratom and... Um, I want like he was get, he was also getting his kratom from a company called Thai Pimps, which <laughs> which makes yeah, me think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it automatically. I I I'm not sure the time period of this, but there was over in Sweden, nine people died from a kratom product called Krypton that was mixed mm -hmm. with des yeah <laughs> desmethyltramadol. Yeah, right. So it right. wasn't and, and so pure kratom at all. So, so, and they say too that the um, they took a sample from him from this Thai pimps uh, from their vendor, ran it through an LCMSMS, uh, and found. Uh, of course, they found metrigenine, uh, but they also found hydromorphone in trace amounts, which is which is an opiate, like a oh. you know, chemical opiate. So the alterations in the product uh, was found in what he went with. Um, so I want to you know small shout out sidebar this is why the aka is so heavily uh pushing for the truth and labeling uh initiative which is very important and it, it's important for keeping kratom safe for everybody keeping kratom users safe but also making sure that non-kratom users understand that it is uh a safe so the whole labeling thing is there um but mm -hmm. you, you know the other thing where you were, where you headed, I think he, he got his Kratom from the internet. And it's weird how they're like being a savvy 26 year old. He used Google to find an internet vendor. Um, <laughs> but at, at, they, it seemed like he was explaining that to them, the 26 the year old, that uh, the effectiveness of the Kratom as he was using it was diminishing. Um, yeah. So it was just self-reported, but uh my question is, and it would be interesting to know, was he just using Kratom from the same vendor, from the same company uh, every single time and not trying to switch, you know, switch between different manufacturers or different suppliers or different methods of administration? Um, you know, it's not, it's not uncommon for 
you to sort of, you know, get used to uh, the same plant-based product uh, if you use it over and over again. And so mixing things up and, and, and having some diversity in, in where the, that, that plant matter is coming from, um, he might have been able to avoid this uh, uh, loss of effectiveness. Yeah, and if it was adulterated with uh, with an opiate, it it that seems to make sense that he would keep using more and more and more of it, especially since there might have been trace amounts in there. I right? Mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't think about that. He was actually developing a, a rapid tolerance to hydromorphone. I don't think it was. I don't know if it was in all of them. Yeah. Um, but you know. Yeah, but how did it get into one? Was, you know. Uh, you know, how yeah. get in there. And like a reputable company you wouldn't accidentally drop uh, an opiate into their kratom. Well, you know, Ty Pimps is pulling the oldest move in the book, Coca-Cola. Make a drink, add a little Coke, they'll be back for more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they should bring that back. I'd like to try it just, you know, on a weekend or something. The original recipe. <laughs> the original recipe, yeah. And it also said in the study that he was also taking the Tillinen. Uh, intermittently with the kratom, so it's it it doesn't seem like you know he he kind of did the kratom thing right. <laughs> it, it, it it seems like he though went to kratom. Um, it was effective for him, and so you know we should talk a bit about uh, instrumentalization. But in yes. this case, the individual, the our twenty six year old, instrumentalized kratom or used kratom as an instrument. Uh, uh, to achieve pain management and drive it, drive enhancement. So it's a behavioral activation, right? Uh, he did this and, and, and did consume daily, uh, for three months, uh, during which time he, it was reported that he developed a tolerance to the analgesic effects over time. So he was taking 16 grams a day for three months. Then it jumped up to 30 grams a day, um, so he changed the amount uh, with slight adjustments of the dosage, um, but it doesn't seem. It seems that even at the higher dose, it lost the the ability to act as the instrument he was trying to to achieve. He wasn't able, He wasn't getting pain management, mm. and he wasn't giving the the behavioral drive enhancement. Um, and I also think it's important to note here, like the researchers did, um, when he was consuming, you know, up to 30 grams a day, that ends up, you know, that ends up, that ends up costing about 300 to 400 euro per month. And so, yeah. you know, now this is a guy who, who it was effective. He started taking more, but gosh, now it's not really working for him. He didn't have a buddy that said, take a tolerance break, you know, slow down, take a lower dose. You know, I often uh, hear more often than not, especially on, the, on Reddit and other forums that, you know, lower doses are more effective. I, and I've had that myself where you, know, you take too much and you get those eye wobbles and you're like, this is not what I wanted. Now I got to just lay down and be done with it. You say take less, less is more, uh, mm -hmm. it seems to be for freedom. But the, 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 you know, the nail on the coffin was, and I'm spending three hundred to four hundred dollars a month on this stuff. I must be addicted. I must, you know, I must need to go seek treatment. And then he walks into this place. And what is okay? So drug instrumentalization is kind of a concept that um, this uh, researcher uh, Mueller is kind of uh, talking about in various studies that he did. But 
I'm just going to read, drug instrumentalization describes the use of a psychoactive drug by a non-addicted individual in order to better reach non-drug-related goals in life, as opposed to drug-related goals. Uh, Drug instrumentalization goals, otherwise known as consumatory motives, may include improvement of social interaction, improved cognitive performance, or better work performance. And my question was, aren't all... Isn't isn't the reason that everybody takes any drug a kind of some kind of goal to improve how you feel at least, or or right? He seems to divide the motivations for drugs into euphoria, which would be I want to get high, versus my back hurts and I can't work if my back hurts this bad. That that was my exact initial reaction to this notion of instrumentalization, um, and you know I think as we chatted earlier, it was it, to me my first gut reaction was, well, if a, if a person's taking a drug uh, to have better performance at work, let's say like an ADHD medication, like a like an amphetamine, right? They're taking it for the purpose of improving their focus and work productivity, but just with you're still getting the euphoria like the drugs in your system yeah. it's still working on your brain's reward system so you know just a set and setting is very important but you know telling yourself well this is not for feeling good this is for getting work done and then you pop a pill and the pill doesn't care what you said before it's going to just act how it acts um, so i was sort of you know what's going on here why do we need this concept um of instrumentalization but so I decided to dig dig into it a little bit more because it does seem to be, you know, the, the third author, which is typically the most senior scientist, uh, Christian P. Mueller, um, mm-hmm. in, in the article we're, we're reviewing here, uh, he has a, let's see, 2011 um, large, large r- report or paper in uh, behavioral brain sciences called Drugs as Instruments, a new framework for non-addictive psychoactive drug use. And so I mentioned this because now that I read it in this perspective, I think what he's doing here is actually kind of genius. Um, so essentially, uh, there are a lot of scientists who are trying to figure out how people get addicted to drugs and how we can help drug addicts, right? Um, most that has resulted in, you know, National Institute of Drug Abuse, where I got our, my grant money from, we had to get, uh, we had to study drug abuse. We had to get things addicted to things and then study what their addictive state was like and hopefully learn something that will help humans that end up being addicted. Right. Um, so there are inherent biases and cognitive frameworks within that paradigm. So if someone is addicted to a drug, let's say you're already addicted, the scientists who are studying addiction automatically assume if you're an addict, you're taking that substance because it makes you feel good. You're doing it because you want the hedonistic pleasure, your brain's reward system, which we talked about uh, in the last episode, that mesolimbic pathway in the nucleus accumbens, has been quote unquote hijacked. And the only way to get that good feeling is by continuing to consume your drug, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're pushing addicts sort of into a, a corner. And if you're an addict and you're taking a drug, you're doing it because you want to feel good. Where Mueller starts off on this was real interesting is that, you know, look, people take drugs. People have been taking drugs since the beginning of drugs and, and the beginning of time and the beginning of humans around the world. And more often than not, the majority of people who consume psychoactive drugs, the drugs that have addiction potential, are not addicts and don't become addicted. Yeah. So the very, you know, the very, um, the very idea that you take a drug, you become addicted is out the window. Most people by Most. far across the world can take heroin or cocaine and not become addicted to it to the point where, you know, they start uh, ruining their lives and, and losing relationships. So where he lays this out is to say, Although drug addiction is an undeniable and major burden to society, to, cons- to a considerable degree, the use of psychoactive drugs is unrelated to addiction. And we need to tease those things apart. Um, and there are, there's this great you know, uh, history of teasing those things apart. If you wanted to help the addicts, what you really want to understand is the people who don't become addicts when they use things that could be addictive. Um, and so the article gets into, you know, different evolutionary, evolutionary traits, uh, starting with, you know, prepping food and getting plants for nutrition and seeking out certain types of plants or uh, meats or whatever, you know, berries or flowers to achieve a specific goal. And in oh, that wow. case, like way back in the day, you know, we're, we're they're looking for dandelions today because, you know, I don't know, we'll need that no bot to tell us what it's good for. Or, um, but essentially, for the longest time, our species has been selectively uh, ingesting plants to achieve goals based on how we're currently feeling. Yeah. And the reason people take drugs is part of our evolution, essentially. Well, yeah. I mean, the reason that humans seek out specific plants uh, to consume has been around since the very beginning, you know, cause it doesn't make sense that there's these plants that just exist in the world that, you know, one of them has cocaine on it. One of them has cannabinoids. Ooh, it just doesn't make sense that, that these plants would have uh, drug compounds in them that react to specific receptors in our brain. That's another episode, but the notion of us selectively, getting these plants and consuming them for specific reasons is a very old one. And then we get into um, different theories and concepts and frameworks on learning, on learning behavior and learning memory and and how you begin to associate like mental effects or behavioral effects or physiological feelings after consumption of something, how that gets reinforced. um, And, there's three or four different, you know, frameworks that are presented here. Um, but, you know, basically the take home point of, the, of what Mueller is saying with this instrumentalization is that if we actually want to study and prevent addiction, then we need to understand how people make that transition to addiction and how the, the, 
purpose of them using that drug or as an instrument to achieve a certain end, um, at what point does that switch from, I was using this, you know, just a, I was, I was drinking, I had a little bit of alcohol because I just wanted to feel loose and, you know, smile, lay back, maybe hit on someone for a little bit. Yeah. At what point does that instrumental use of beer switch to, I'm drinking this beer because I don't like, I need it and I don't really care about where I'm at or where anybody else is at. That's a distinct switch in, in motivations there. And so what he's trying to do with this, uh, instrumentalization framework is study that specific window, that switch and transition from, uh, non-addiction to addiction. And, and I got to give him a mad props on that. I, you know, for as much as I sort of scoffed at the idea, um, and you know, might've been my head said, Oh God, this is one of those scientists that's just trying to make a, you know, a philosophical semantic argument, you know, mm-hmm. using different words when in really in reality, you know, it's, it's, it's not even about what it's about. But when I actually read the motivation behind it in context of addiction science, um, it makes tons of sense. And yeah, that article is a super good read drugs as instruments, a new framework for non-addictive psychoactive drug use. And I also just, uh, want to double down and appreciate that. Um, it's often not realized that most people who consume psychoactive compounds that have addiction potential do not become addicted. And so, you know, it's, I don't know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's from growing up in the Midwest, uh, you know, especially when, when opiates started sort of just rip roaring through America. Um, but I remember, you know, I've been, I've been told by dare officers, well, if you smoke weed once, you're going to be addicted forever. Yeah. Like, well, n- not only is that not true, um, but you, you've then set up the expectation in that young mind that, well, if I smoke it once, I guess I'm, uh, uh addicted and I, and that's me forevermore. And, you know, that's the lifestyle I'm going to take. So it's just, uh, you know, I'm happy that you and I are doing this so we can get some, sort of objective and critical information on uh, drug use out there because Lord knows Dare wasn't doing it right. Yeah, I, I actually remember a cop saying that exact thing. I mean, uh, it said uh, long-term use of Kratom changed the emotional status of the patient, which he recognized himself. It led to a dulling of bodily perceptions and emotional reactions to environmental stimulation blah, 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 in particular music perception and, and production, I guess, is productivity or something no longer induced positive mm-hmm. feelings. I, I also, when that, when they read that, the change of the emotional status of the patient, this, that, the other thing, they don't acknowledge, and, it, and I don't know if they thought about it, but you also got to keep in mind that like when he started this, what, the accident occurred when he was like 23, maybe 22, and now he's 26. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, 23, 26. This guy could also have just, you know, been met and faced with the reality of adulthood and adulting and, uh, you know, the understanding that he's no longer a kid and he needs to participate in the society, uh, and work for the man and give taxes to the man and pay (laughs) bills. You know, he, he, that, that sort of, um, getting tossed to the wolves of real life, uh, around that age, you know, is a big, is a big sort of life life milestone um, that affects people differently. But I, I just said, you know, change the emotional state when he recognized dulling of body perceptions. 
Duke could have just been depressed because he's like, yeah, well, now I'm a de- an adult, and now I got to do adulting all the time. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> you know? Music is definitely better when you have less responsibilities. <laughs> it's good to reiterate that this is just a case study, that, and that's the it's just one guy's experience, so you can't really make generalizations about whatever substance based on uh, one person's experience. Certainly, certainly. And it's also a case study written by um, addiction treatment professionals. So it's just worth noting that like they had someone come into their office who said they were addicted to something and and they'd like them to help get them off. So they did that. Um, And I'm assuming then they asked him questions, you know, gathered some life histories, but they certainly weren't you know, measuring blood cortisol levels or taking objective physiological measurements. They were just basically taking this guy's word for it, which is fine, um, you know, I suppose. But um, it it doesn't certainly speak to the real mechanisms behind what's going on. Um, And so, yeah, just with all science, too, Brian, I'll just make a blanket statement. Any study. It, good scientists are skeptical, right? So yeah. take everything with a grain of salt and, uh, uh, and talk it over with other smart people who, who can maybe shed light uh, on different things. Questions about science in general, because there was another uh, blog that posted about this, and he kind of painted them as shills for the big pharma, which I don't... The mechanism of how this works, I mean, they're not necessarily... This isn't necessarily an anti-kratom study there's several statements in there that you know say that kratom could be you know effective and in, in uh, treatment for opiates and is it i mean are there scientists out there that do studies and think well hey maybe the big farm will give me tons of cash and so that guy was essentially saying that the authors of this study so uh christian mueller is a shill for Big Pharma. That's basically what his gripe was. Kratom installation, blah, 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 proposes an absolutely evil theory, which is that Kratom users should be treated with morphine and then take morphine long-term. I don't think the study says that at all, and I had a polite exchange with the guy on Twitter about, I don't think it says that. Right. The the idea that there are scientists out there that are taking big bags of cash from Big Pharma and so they're going to just tell a lie, I don't think it kind of works like that. I mean, I, I I know there are sponsored studies from, you know, pharmaceutical companies that might m- m- want to make their products look better than they are. Or, but what do you what do you think about that? How how that works? Yeah. First off, um, it doesn't seem like that guy did a did a critical reading of this paper, all all three pages of it, and just sort of was like, oh, this is bad for. You know, it's a kratom narrative. Let's let's trash it, right? So yeah. I'm actually real glad um, that you suggested this one, um, even though there would be concern that this is is a uh, portrays kratom in a bad way. We want to be sort of objective about the science we're reading and stuff. Um, so I, in no way at all, think that this article or um, case study uh, demonizes kratom uh, or really presents any new evidence that would lead me to change my beliefs on the effectiveness of Kratom uh, for the various ways that people use it, right? Um, So I I think he was probably just reacting to like the headline and wanted to make sure everybody knew where he stood. We'll leave it at that. In regards to your question um, about uh, scientists um, 
and uh, influence from big pharma and like, are there shills and this, that, and the other thing. There's different levels to everything, right? Most importantly, uh, and this is, I was sort of disillusioned a bit once I got to graduate school and was in the lab on the day-to-day because, first of all, science is very expensive, like stupidly expensive, where you're, you know, you're buying a, a glass beaker and it costs $35, right? It's just ridiculous. Um, so there's that. You need to have a lot of money to do it, and you got to get that money from somewhere. Um, but also, you know, you just have to realize and remember that scientists are normal people too, like everyone else. Uh, you know, the, the sort of idea of scientists are they're in a lab with a white, you know, white lab jacket on. They are, you know, intently studying something and they are reporting what they found uh, almost sort of robotically, right? With, with as little emotion or sort of uh, motivated uh, manipulation uh, at all, right? Like a, a, a scientist yeah. is this pristine, you know, fact truth teller. At, at the end of the day, scientists are people, right? And they get woken up by their kids, their newborn at three in the morning and they're irritable and they don't know what they're doing. And they, they want to get, you know, tenure. And the, the only way you can get tenure is by getting grants and, and publishing papers, right? They're under all sorts of logistical pressures to maintain or advance their position within the system. Yeah. just like any other profession, yeah. right? So because that's true, it is certainly true that scientists are susceptible to getting paid money uh, at the expense of their credibility. Um, for example, you know, there are plenty of scientists through the 70s, even to today, that are paid by fossil fuel companies and they'll argue till they're blue in the face that climate change is not happening uh, as a result of our increased CO2 emissions. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know, you know, if they believe what they're saying, you know, or if they've convinced themselves that they're saying or they're cherry picking data. At any rate, the answer to your question is yes, it's possible. And yes, it happens. Now, in this case, these guys aren't pushing any specific product or alternative, they're just doing what is the medical standard, Mm -hmm. treating opiate addicts with longer lasting opiates. Um, They do it in Germany. They do it here. I would say that that sort of uh, paradox or conundrum that we find ourselves in is much more a result of political pressure that involves who donates money to who and who gets on what state medical board uh, and who doesn't. And, you know, that sort of political uh, runaround is, is mucking up the works in the, in the true science. Um, you see it all the time. I mean, it took Ohio so long to even consider the idea that medical cannabis should be legal. Um, and they were, they were and, and to a large extent, still remain against it. I mean, I remember asking John Kasich, he asked what I did. I'm a doctor. Um, and he goes, Oh, you know, you treat people. And I go, well, no, I'm, I'm a research scientist, PhD. And he goes, Oh, what are your research? And I said, uh, uh, drugs, you know, cannabis. Um, and he was like, why would you do that? There's nothing there. You know, he, he's just, he's already <laughs> filed these compounds away in his head as bad, not, not worth anything and stay away from them. I can't help that. That's, that's his yeah. problem, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and so the other thing too, along these lines, uh, as we get to the end, end there, so they helped him detox from the kratom. If he were to show up and I were to have an addiction clinic and he was still in pain, he was able to get off the pharmaceuticals and use kratom, but the kratom's becoming less effective. Uh, before I sent him down the path uh, of pharmaceutical drugs, which, you know, as we've talked about, are this 99% pure chemical compound that is, you know, a very modern, very processed, very, um, you know, clean uh, product. Um, I would talk to him about his Kratom use. Um, using Kratom and the plant matter, you're not being exposed to that like pure 99% pure compound. And so the way it affects you is, is going to be different. And I, I found nothing here that they discussed different methods of administration of Kratom. So he was using it yeah. in capsules. Um, so first I would have started, have you bought Kratom from any other sources? That would be a good place to start, right? Have you considered tolerance breaks? And then have you considered different methods of administration? So he was using capsules. You could do it as a tea. Um, have, does he know that there are extracts that exist? So you don't have to take as much plant matter, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera. And so as a psychopharmacologist, you got to, you know, always remind people the dose is one thing, but the method of administration is almost more critical. And so if he hadn't tried any of that, uh, he just got the capsules from the same person for three years and, and ate him his capsules. I'm kind of not surprised that the uh, effects started to diminish. I mean, really, over that amount of time, it just sort of becomes this habit that the body is not even really aware of, right? So if you were mixing it up a little bit, he probably wouldn't have fallen into this um, situation where they got him back on the pharmaceuticals. It's interesting because a lot of times loved ones will not accept a natural alternative over the pharmaceutical alternative because they think, oh, well, if it's plant matter, you know, it's a drug. It's not medicine. If you want, if you want medicine, you take a pill. And that's a really sort of very modern, very American, very dangerous mindset to be in. This is a man. Um, oh, cool. So we got some audience questions. Oh, we oh yeah. There's questions. like Love six it. or seven of them. But um, this one guy uh, commented on our last journal club a week ago, and his uh, username's Rectangled. And uh, it was just <laughs> it's just a general question. He goes, hey, man, can I ask if Kratom can be bad, like the negatives? I've heard some people bring that up, but I would love to know more from a professional such as yourself. I assume he's addressing you and not me. <laughs> 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 but can Kratom be bad? I mean, all right, open-ended question there. All right, can, can Kratom be bad? Well, uh, the short answer is sure, yeah. Yeah. But, it, it, you know, it can milk be bad? Yes. Can water be bad? Yes. Too much water, uh, I think they refer to that as drowning. Um, so it really it would be helpful to uh, define bad. I'm making an assumption that if someone's asking that question, 
They're either evaluating whether they want to take it or yes. they are they want to take it, and someone is telling them not to because they think it's bad. Yeah. I'm going to just get philosophical here to say from an ethics perspective that uh, I'm, I'm an Aristotelian guy. Everything in moderation, right? So um, with all psychoactive drugs, with all medications, with anything, you know, all consumption, um, anything has the potential to be bad if used in excess um, or irresponsibly. Um, so, you know, there's that. That said, um, if, if he's considering taking it uh, for, you know, treating, let's say, uh, uh, some pain or some aches and pains, uh, and he's saying, look, I could take Advil or Tylenol, um, or maybe he's already on some uh, prescription opiates and he wants to get off of them. Um, in that scenario, I would say no way that Kratom's bad. I mean, I think that Kratom, uh, just like cannabis, these natural plant alternatives that aren't these synthesized, uh, isolated chemicals, um, provide the body with more, um, a more diverse, complex set of uh, molecules to interact with. And, uh, you know, it's been sort of what we've been doing uh, for most of our time on this planet. Short answer, what was his name? That was Rectangle. It, it, he was from YouTube. He commented on our last uh, pod. Oh, on the YouTube. Okay, yeah. but his name's Rectangle? Yeah. So, so Rectangle, short answer, is Kratom bad? My answer is no. Uh, just don't abuse it in excess because anything can be bad if consumed or uh, exposed to uh, in unreasonable levels. Longer answer is depends what you're using it for, depends how responsible you're using it, and uh, the alternatives that you've also uh, considered uh, uh, to do instead of Kratom, right? So I wouldn't just rule it out and say it's bad. I, I think that's a bad move. Yeah. All right. That's a good answer. And and this is kind of a related question. It's from uh, Liberty Russ, Trap House Russ on Twitter, and uh, he's been following me for a while, and I've been following him. And uh, he he just had a general question: or What are the long term effects of kratom on brain function? Good question, Trap House Russ. Yeah. I don't think he's following me, but come on, Trap House, follow your boy. I'll give yeah. you a follow too. <laughs> <laughs> um. His question is, what are the long-term effects on the brain of Kratom use? So the short answer is, we don't know. The more detailed answer would go, I think, a little bit something like this. So I've got to use other drugs uh, just to contextualize the sort of range of possibilities here. Cannabinoids found in the cannabis plant um, are the most potent um, and effective neuroprotective compounds we know of on the planet. Um, you can look in the science journals to, to find support for that statement. I generally direct people to look at the uh, patent uh, held by the federal uh, government of the United States uh, Health Department uh, on the use of cannabinoids uh, as neuroprotectants and antioxidants, because uh, most people don't know that the federal government both says there's no medical value while also holding the patent. Also, uh, when I was in Israel at a cannabis conference, uh, it, it was interesting to learn that uh, on the battlefield, the medics there have Listerine strips 
in their like belt ready to go because if a, uh, uh, there's four guys in a car and they drive over an IUD and everybody gets rattled, they'll give them cannabinoids on the battlefield immediately to try to reduce um, swelling in the brain and damage to the brain. This is also why uh, cannabinoids and cannabis are great for uh, neurodegenerative diseases. So I'll, I'll back up off of cannabis there, but look, if your parents are starting to age uh, or maybe are already showing signs of dementia or Parkinson's, I would um, strongly encourage you to start getting them on cannabinoids, even if it's just CBD. My parents don't have a choice in that, in that uh, regard. Um, moving on from that. So cannabis, long-term effects of cannabis, it, it is very extremely neuroprotective. Uh, MDMA, Molly, ecstasy, uh, it's an amphetamine. Uh, there is something called serotonergic syndrome or serotonin toxicity. Um, too much serotonin released in your brain, which could be induced by a drug like uh, ecstasy, uh, can lead to oxidative damage um, and can lead to, you know, loss uh, of neuronal cells. It, it, it creates, it can perpetuate a toxic environment in your brain that over repeated uh, long-term living in this setting, the brain will start to show brain damage that we can measure in not only brain imaging scans, but also in like increased cytokines, uh, decreased activity in certain areas, et cetera. So amphetamines, long-term use of amphetamines can cause brain damage. Another one would be like alcohol too. I mean, you can Google that real quick and say, show me the brain of a chronic alcoholic and the brain of a, uh, someone who doesn't consume alcohol. Um, there could be some clear signs there, but with, with alcohol, it's sort of just globally causing problems. It's, it's, there's nothing really specifically happening, but it's, it shrinks brain sizes, this, that, and the other thing. Is Kratom bad for your brain in the long term? Like I said at the beginning, we don't know. What we do know is that Kratom has been around for a while. It has growing in popularity now in the Western world. Um, it has been, you know, really for the last, you know, probably two decades, but now more and more people are coming aware of it. I haven't ever heard of um, a long-term Kratom user, like just spontaneously explode or, you know, spontaneously <laughs> develop a hole in their brain, right? Yeah, so yeah. there's no uh, indication uh, in the length of time that humans have been consuming Kratom, that spontaneous brain explosion is a possible thing that could happen. If, that, if something that severe and that drastic could occur, we'd already know about it. The compounds that are in Kratom that are exerting these psychological effects are unique to Kratom and have not been thoroughly investigated in a neurobiology lab yet right and so um depending on where the funding comes from like we were talking earlier you get m m uh, money from nida national institutes of drug abuse you better believe one of your papers is going to be we gave them kratom until their brain exploded <laughs> um and, and they'll like and with they'll the zebra fish and, and the caffeine right exactly <laughs> or, or this other story dude there was this like I, I think I said this earlier, LSD has a very safe uh, therapeutic window. Yeah, there yeah. isn't really a lethal dose. There's a study, though, uh, where at a zoo somewhere, 
they gave so much LSD to an elephant, it eventually died. Oh and then, of course, God. that was in the Did headline. Did it kill yeah, a bunch of people that... first? <laughs> I mean, and it was like, you Why know, did they do I, that to the well damn elephant? A, that is fucked up. Yeah. It's, it's fucked up, and it might as well have been a gallon of LSD. You oh, know? my God. But, of course, that made the headlines to say, oh, LSD will kill you. Better be careful. Jesus. LSD won't kill you, buddy. Drinking a gallon of it, if you weigh as much of an, <laughs> as an elephant, might if I see somebody you, do that to an elephant, I might kill that person. <laughs> and then at that point, it's like, did they die or are they just now in a new dimension? Because I don't know what's going on at that point. And why waste? Um, that's enough LSD to fund a whole Grateful Dead tour. <laughs> why waste it all? <laughs> yeah, it was probably confiscated. And they're like, look, we need to really get on, get some headlines about this being dangerous. So I want you to pump that elephant with so much LSD he dies. Damn. Uh, I mean, an elephant on, like, a little microdose of it might be interesting, but Jesus. Wow. Yeah, with the brain of the elephants, yeah, I mean, I I can't imagine it. You know, I'll save this for uh, another episode, but I wanted to give LSD to a color-changing octopus in the worst way. Oh, God, that would have been awesome. Yeah, it's still a goal of mine. We'll but let's talk about that. that. <laughs> we can unpack that at another another time. Together. Okay, so we got uh, Jennifer Van Blanc, who's awesome. Every time I talk to her, I find out more about addiction. She was uh, she was addicted to opiates, and she got off it with kratom. But her question is, can we measure the effects of kratom when it comes to the anti-anxiety, anti-depressant effects? Is there a way to inarguably prove that kratom eases slash erases those issues and um i guess a related question is from kendall clark and he said can you list exactly which receptors kratom binds to and their relative potency compared to other drugs yeah, those are two different questions there. really but very good questions thank you guys uh and loving the engagement here and happy to answer uh they're you know, both guests question. on my podcast too kendall and uh jen oh nice yeah nice <clears throat> so so keep the questions coming i, I don't care how uh I don't care how far out of left field they are. This one, uh, although, is pretty straightforward. So the first part is um, mechanistically what's going on with Kratom that leads to a reduction of anxiety um, or stress, right? Um, So that's interesting. Uh, You have to to unpack uh, the notion of stress and anxiety from a neuroscientist perspective that can get messy and nuanced. What I think I'll say is that in the case of Kratom and also in the case of like many other drugs, if you're taking something with the goal of reducing the amount of pain you're in, if that thing you take reduces your pain, uh, your anxiety, I'm assuming then goes with that, right? People are getting anxious about worrying about being in pain. So just, the act of removing pain can be a very anxiolytic process. There could be, and there probably is, you know, much more going on uh, at the molecular level um, with the uh, activity of the, the kratom alkaloids at different receptors, right? So like, if you want to talk psychopharmacology, what we typically give people for anti-anxiety medications are benzodiazepines. What they do is increase the activity of GABA, a neurotransmitter in, in conserved in all animals. Uh, that is the primary inhibitory transmitter, meaning when GABA is signaling, it is telling 
the neurons it's signaling with to stop signaling. So depressed, hit the brakes, right? And so really when people take benzos, their entire central nervous system is getting sort of slowed down and relaxed. Um, so if you are overthinking things or, um, you know, stressed out in your head, they can feel very effective. Whether or not they actually remove the anxiety, I think it, it is to be debated. They just broadly depress the activity of the nervous system. And uh, last little caveat there is that humans, as far as we know, um, are the only animals that are able to think themselves into a physiological stress response. Um, there's a great book on this by Robert Sapolsky uh, called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Like for a zebra, <laughs> lion's a stressful event. But other than that, they're not worried about the stock market or how their sports team's performing or, you know, other sort of uh, uh, inferior human type things. Yeah. And so... You know, it, it's, you can't just say anxiety and stress is one thing caused by one thing and manifested mechanistically in one way, especially in humans. Um, so there's much more to learn there as we talked in the last time. And I think where we're going in the, in the answer to the next question, where the receptors they're binding to and what activity is happening, you know, we're just now getting those studies and we're just now seeing that it's, going into dopaminergic signaling, serotonergic signaling, uh, uh, noradrenergic and adrenaline signaling. Um, and so we, I don't think we've seen GABA signaling or glutamate signaling yet, but those, you know, turning those on or off can also lead to a depressed uh, uh, nervous system activity. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's up to, to all of us in the creative community to uh, push for additional studies because, if we figure out what it is me mechanistically doing to relieve stress and it's a novel uh, mechanistic way that it's achieving that, um, we've now made a rather monumental discovery on how the human brain works. Okay, the one question is from Mark Davidson, and he says, the advantage and disadvantages of taking Kratom during the pandemic, in general, does Kratom boost immunity, and do we know enough about that yet? So, uh a very interesting question. Um, and you know, the inner, if you think about what makes you, you, right, you have, uh, your brain, uh, and all the chemical soup that's there. Right. Um, and the, you're reacting to, uh, input into your sensory organs. Um, but once we get below the brainstem, uh, the interaction of the nervous system with the immune system, uh, is a critical, uh, junction uh, that that makes you you and, and makes you feel uh, how you are and, and behave or, or uh, act or think. Anyways, it's enormously important beyond just uh, protecting you from bad things that come from the environment. Uh, so I'd like to say, I think I'd like to do this. I don't know and haven't looked into um, any research on uh, Kratom or metragenine uh, uh, effects on suppressing or enhancing or, you know, no effect on the immune system. Yeah. I, I say, I would suggest essentially maybe we find a paper uh, on that uh, for the next one. Um, we can do, we can look at something on how Kratom uh, interacts with the immune system. That could be but one of the poll answers maybe. Yeah. 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 That'd be cool. I don't know enough off the top of my head to, to be able to answer that. I don't that. think there is um, much, really, but uh, there might be something up the, out there. As part of the previous question, they were specifically asking about 
what receptors uh, the kratom compounds bind to. And when I, I'm guessing when they were asking about potency differences or potency comparisons, they were asking about binding affinity. So like, does metragenine bind to the mu opiate receptor with a stronger binding affinity than hydrocodone? Um, I also don't know those numbers off the top of my head. Um, you could look into what is called pharmacokinetics, and there's probably a table that exists on those binding affinities. Um, but I would be happy, and, and frankly, I think we discussed all those receptors and the interactions in the second episode of the Journal Club podcast. Yeah, and I think there was to... a good study about that by uh, Andrew Krugel, but I, I, it came out a couple years ago, but I, I don't, he's one of the uh, guys that studies Kratom a lot that I see. And, and uh, the last question we have is from Mark Swagger, who I've had on before. He's a um, social scientist up in uh, University of Rochester, and I had him as a guest before. We had a really good discussion. Um, but he has a neuroscientist or neuroscience question in general. I'll just read it. Uh, so Mark Swagger says, given that neuroscience uncovers mostly correlations, how do we push back against the assumption that brain activity always causes the mind and not vice versa? As an example, successful psychotherapy modifies fMRI results. I wonder which is primary, psychedelic occasion, mystical experiences, or biological underpinnings? Or do mind and brain exist separately and interact, as is, as is suggested by some results in physics? Did you get well, that? Well, thank you for that. Thank you for that loaded gun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a great question, and um, I... I understand this sort of dig at neuro. Um, it is very mechanistic. Um, um, so neuroscience is not strictly correlational, but if you're doing brain imaging studies, that, that's not just neuroscience, it's psychology or, or, or psychiatry or, or any number of different disciplines that are doing brain imaging studies. Yes, things end up being very correlational. And of course, we can't get causation from, from correlation. Neuroscience to me, though, is about integrating information from different levels of analysis. So like, you know, looking at serotonin uh, transporter gene alleles and how they're expressed differently uh, is, is something one neuroscience lab could do. Um, but then uh, we could also be looking at serotonergic drugs and how it changes behavior uh, in a behavioral lab, right? Neuroscience to me represents an attempt to integrate across those levels of analysis in a way that more accurately reflects what the nervous system actually is, you know, uh, a, a very complex, dynamic, always active, always changing system from genes to environment. Um, and I'll also want to acknowledge and appreciate where he's coming from in that I've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, at the, at the uh, after parties of conferences trying to convince my neuroscience colleagues that if you want to understand anxiety or depression, we need to stop digging so far into the brain and start looking out of the brain um, and how things that are external to the brain actually change the brain's physiology. Um, so, so technically, uh, my degree is in social neuroscience. Uh, it was started by a man named John Cassiapo over at the University of Chicago. I spent the summer with him. 
Um, and the central tenet of social neuroscience is essentially like the things that affect that the external factors that you are around and in affect your brain and your brain's activity just as much, if not more than any sort of, uh, genetic differences or neurotransmitter concentration differences. And, you know, unfortunately, I would say it's still an uphill battle to get neuroscientists to realize that. Um, but I think we're getting a lot closer, um, you know, and I think you said something about uh, psychedelics and, and sort of the, the dissolution of this or that or the other thing. You know, what, what's nice is that at least, uh, at least with psychedelics, we can approach that from a neuroscientist perspective to say, um, everything's more connected and everybody feels more connected when our sort of ego gets out of the way and our default, uh, uh, network programming can shut down for a minute. Um, and we realize that we're all part of this complex system. Um, of course that there's interesting studies that, that look at the differences between Western brains and Eastern brains. Eastern cultures are much more holistic and about the group. Whereas, yeah. Uh, in, in Western cultures, it's the individual who's the hero of the story. Um, and that manifests itself in different brain activities and how the brain works. And so I think, you know, to, to answer his idea, his question on, um, the mind and the brain and the differences and where does one start and where does one end and, and, uh, how do we tackle that question or what's my opinion uh, on that question? I would just offer, um, so I, I would say uh, my answer to his question about um, the mind, where's the mind start and the brain end, and what does the neuroscientist say about that would be, uh, I look forward to uh, meeting you someday and having a conversation about that uh, because it's a, it's, a, it's a question that has been asked uh, since the beginning of time, and uh, science is just one way to approach answering that question. There are, of course, many other disciplines who have, have different answers and different traditions. Um, at least the, the good thing about neuroscientists, is, as I know it, is that it, it, it's, it hopes to integrate all of that information. Um, and I don't know if we're, we're ever going to truly know where or when, and, and, and maybe the mind is, is culture, you know, and, and there's different types of minds, hive minds, that's not the other thing. Uh, luckily, with plants like kratom and uh, psychedelics and and, and all the other controlled substances that are confabulated into the uh, harsh term drugs, uh, the more we can get people to understand that there are differences there, I think the closer we can get to uh, using advancements in modern technology to probe uh, consciousness uh, with, with tools like those compounds. Um, but of course, there's always more to, more to life than, than what's in your brain and what the molecules are doing. And, and so I appreciate the question. The answer is, uh, there is no answer, and I look forward to meeting you someday so we no can sick. see if we can figure it you out. You know what? I mean, I was <laughs> going to ask him. I, I mean, I just asked you about today. I was going to ask if he wants to come on, and we'll have, you know, maybe like a Zoom thing, and uh, you guys can talk about it. He's done a lot of uh, uh, Kratom uh, studies, and he did one with, uh, there's a webpage called Arrowhead that's been out since the 90s, and he did a... Oh, I know about Erwin, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he, he did a study with the, the people that run that page. 
Yeah, shout out to Dr. Slaughter, shout out to Heroid, and shout out to Dr. Cachet. Yo, for more information on all things Kratom, check out KratomScience.com. Music is by Captain Big Wheel. The song is Moon Runner. Take care.